joining me now on the Lakeshore Records podcast is composer of the upcoming Lakeshore Records release, Halton Catchfire, season one and two, Paul Hasslinger. Paul, how are you doing today? Very well. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, it's, it truly is a pleasure of mine to, uh, to be speaking to you today. Uh, when Lakeshore said to me, and, you know, we, we'd like you to talk to Paul about Halton Catchfire, I thought, that's a great opportunity to uh, gush. <laughs> well, thank you very much. No, I mean, it's, I mean, we are primarily here to talk about Halton Catchfire, uh, season one and two, which is out now digitally on Lakeshore Records, and he's coming out on CD uh, very, very soon, sometime in uh, early September. Uh, but if we can go back a little bit and talk uh, briefly about your career before uh, you were composing for films, uh, because you were actually, you were a member of the band Tangerine Dream, uh, for for quite you know for a an iconic period in the in the group's uh, timeline. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how how you you know joined the band and and uh, you know kind of the process of how you worked on things? Yeah, it's uh, it's funny to uh, to remember this now because it is uh, almost exactly thirty years ago that I joined that band, and so it's it's been a while ago and. Uh, you know, it, it it produces perspective if you have that much time, sort of to to come back to something and and look at it again. Um, but the fact is, in in '86, I, I was asked to join Tangerine Dream for a tour. They they sort of were in a bind for an upcoming UK tour. As a matter of fact, they were looking um, to replace Johannes Schmerling, who for some reason had decided he doesn't want to tour anymore. So. Uh, they needed a, a player fast. They were auditioning um, keyboard players in Vienna where they had a studio. And uh, I was one uh, in the audition and somehow got the gig and then played the tour and then was asked after the tour to stay on for the next album project, which was Underwater Sunlight. So it sort of it went step by step. And, and for me, it was, of course, a great ticket to just get out of Austria, which I always wanted um, from, from pretty much from birth, uh, wanted to leave. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and then the next five years were kind of a whirlwind of everything. There was a lot of touring. There was a lot of albums. And, and it was film. And it was the first taste of uh, what it is like to, to score for picture. How, I mean... Uh, before that part, or previous to that, had you actually been a fan of film music? Not at all. No, I was aware of film music. I always uh, enjoyed sort of the application of, of music to film. But I really, I grew up wanting to play in bands. You know, I was a studio musician in Vienna. I pretty much took any gig I could get. I just wanted to get away from the heritage that I grew up with, you know, which was classical music. And I mean, I did that too. And, and I had classical training. But I wanted to be where the fun uh, stuff was happening, you know, and it's to me in the studio and, and being on, on stage with bands. So it was a, a great way to, to realize that dream, no pun. Yeah, no, no, I, uh, I completely get it. I mean, you, you mentioned you were, uh, you were a working session musician. Had you had any bands of your own uh, previous to that? Yes, none, none of which I would like to mention. <laughs> but uh, there were, I mean, I didn't have my own band, if that's the question. I, mm. I, was, I was always taking, you know, uh, joining other bands and played with them on tour or, or, or in the studio. Uh, but there wasn't sort of my band. Um, 
you know, the, the question about Tangerine Dream quite often comes up if I was a big fan and if I was a big fan of uh, electronic music per mm. se. And, and again, the answer is no. I was, I was generally interested in everything. And Tangerine Dream, by the time I, I went up for the audition, to me was this sort of somewhat strange German outfit that had these uh, enormous racks of equipment on stage that made me really jealous and made me want to buy more, uh, more uh, you know, modular gear. <laughs> but other than that, I didn't have a specific knowledge. And in, in a funny way, I think that was part of why I won the audition is that I didn't come uh, sort of with... Uh, preoccupied with it or, or with any notions of, of what Tangerine Dream should be. I, I just went in pretty much as a player and said, yeah, what do you, what do you need? You know, and, and, and this was maybe the approach they were looking for. Yeah, I mean, it clearly worked out. I mean, of, of those, uh, of the records you created at the time, Miracle Mile, Near Dark, Canyon Dreams. I mean, these are three of, if, if someone were to say to me, like, can you recommend me three Tangerine Dream records? There's a good chance that those would actually be the three that I would recommend. I mean, especially Near Dark. I mean, that, that record itself is just one of the most unforgettable. It's a flawless, flawless film score. Uh, when you joined the band, were you then, in, you know, were you involved in the writing process of everything? Pretty much, yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's obviously Tangerine Dream wasn't a sort of a standard or traditional band format. It was three keyboard players, and uh, in the studio there would be sort of a natural trade-off um, uh, of people playing parts and mixing and production. And, you know, because I was a studio player, it also I didn't just play uh, keyboards, I, you know, on Underwater Sunlight, I, I played a lot of guitars and, uh, and it was, it was pretty much, a, 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 you know, a free, uh, anybody just grab whatever they can grab and, and do something and make some noise. And, you know, I'm not a big uh, fan generally of attributing albums and say, okay, this, you know, this album shows his influence and, and shows his influence um, because Tangerine Dream at that period that I was in at least truly was you know a band and and sort of conglomerate it wasn't it wasn't any anybody in the band who was sort of dominating uh, the agenda or or really setting the course of course Edgar was sort of the longest serving member and the founder so he'd always have seniority, but um, it, it was pretty even at that time, and, and there were even contributions. Now, the albums you mentioned happened to be the, some of the albums, or some of the few albums of that period that I'm not embarrassed about, so thank you for that. <laughs> One of the things about Tangerine Dream is, is how prolific the output was. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what the count is up to now, but this is a band that, is, that has to be close to releasing... A hundred records. <laughs> yeah, Edgar. Edgar was always full of ideas. I'll, I'll say that, <laughs> and uh, and he could not be stopped in that regard. You know, and and as soon as he finished one, he had five other uh, ideas that he wanted to see through. So it's it it was that part of it. You know, the 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 constant busyness and the going from tour to film to album to tour that was driven by Edgar and. And, you know, by his vision, I mean, it was his baby, you know, and, and he was running with it. Yeah, yeah. How, were the, uh, how was playing live uh, for you? I mean, as coming from, 
I mean, you, you were a musician, so I, I would imagine the, the dream for most musicians is to play on stage in front of as many people as they possibly can. And with Tangerine Dream, I mean, they've always been one of these huge, all-encompassing live shows. Uh, you know, how was that for you? Uh, it, it was pretty overwhelming, uh, honestly, on, on that first tour, on the UK tour, um, because I, I literally went from, you know, having to slap my own keyboards to and from the gig to everything was set up, everything was taken care of. I, li I just had to show up and play each night. And, and you know, and, and yes, uh, these, these shows also had a, a particular vibe about them. They were not a, you know, not a standard rock and roll show. It was more of a, a cult audience and a little cult event, you know. I mean, there, there was a, a particular mood to it, and it was very enjoyable, you know, to just see that level of appreciation, uh, appreciation for the history of the band and where they were at when I played with them. Uh, really committed following and, and um, yeah, it was, uh, I, I remember the first few shows was just overwhelming um, how, how cool a situation I found myself in all in a sudden. Yeah. No, I mean, I can imagine it must be like a dream come true. You know, that's the only thing I can kind of uh, equate it to uh, myself. Yeah. Pretty much. You, once you'd... Uh, is Tangerine Dream where you would say that you kind of picked up the... Um, I don't want to say bug, but the idea of film music. Is it, is it being a member of Tangerine Dream that, you know, kind of opened your eyes to... There's something to this. You know, I could, I could do something with this. Uh, yeah, I think, again, the answer is no. Uh, because it was literally just a... Um, it was just one of many things that we did. I enjoyed it, but I never sort of set my sights on it to that's what I want to do next. Uh, it was more, you know, when I came to Los Angeles in, in 1990, after I, I left Tangerine Dream, I came here on a, on a record contract. Um, hmm. Those days there still was a music industry and there were, you know, actually <laughs> a living, um, just making music. So, so I came to LA on a, on a record deal with private music and, um, and that's for the first two years what I did here was, was, was work on music with Peter Bauman, the, you know, uh, another former Tangerine Dream member. And um, it just so happened that Christopher Franke, who also left the band, was also in Los Angeles and, uh, and asked me to help out on a, on a TV show he was doing called Babylon 5. Mm-hmm. And um, I did that for a while, and and I I don't remember the exact way this sort of led to meeting Brian Williams, who introduced me to Graham Revell, who I then also started working with, uh, more in a programming arranging capacity. Yeah, and. It was more the Graham Revell connection than anything else that opened my eyes to the fact that you know there was there's a very wide spectrum in in film that you can have fun with musically because when I was in Tangerine Dream there wasn't the wide spectrum it was people came to Tangerine Dream to ask for one thing and once they got the one thing they were happy and left but with Graham what I what I started to see was that every project was different and every project he used to to explore another musical corner and that's so that really triggered something in me where i went oh uh, it's a more interesting way to spend your musical life maybe than 
being known for one style and then pretty much touring and performing that style for the for the rest of your career yeah well so, um you know and i you know looking back at that uh, and it wasn't like a big decision like you know i had a uh, you know smoked some weed and then said this is <laughs> but um but it in hindsight i think I, I did it intuitively and and it was the right decision because i did have a lot of um very varied musical experiences since that switch and um and i wouldn't have nearly as sort of there to travel log uh if i just stayed in music no no i completely uh completely understand. i mean looking at some of the titles that you you worked on for uh for for graham revel uh pitch black uh kind of a an, an action sci-fi film and then blow and then lara croft tomb raider i mean these are very different projects and then you would then go on and i believe your first solo credit was for the film crazy beautiful which is then even completely different from some of the stuff you'd done with graham as well yeah uh, the the first one even though it wasn't really a feature was a film called cheaters um which is the same director john stockwell who did crazy beautiful and um at the time you know i'm, I'm looking back at that phase now, 2000 to 2003, and uh, and say, well, it, uh, you know, this was at the time pretty interesting stuff to do in film. But I remember I, I just, uh, John was this young, I think he was just barely 20, uh, guy who wanted his film to sound different, you know. <laughs> Mm. And I said, I'm, you know, I, I'll, I'll be happy to, to, to make it different. <laughs> and, uh, and it was as, as easy as, you know, apply because I always felt that the, the traditional forms of film music were a little bit antiquated and, and sort of, you know, uh, smelled of museum a little bit. And uh, so I, I was dying to, to just bring in a few new textures and approach film scoring more like you approach album production. always that's and now you know these days of course everybody's doing that and uh, it's no big deal but at the time when we started it um, it was pretty you know it, it was pretty standard what happened in the film music world and also to to remind you when I got to LA in the 90s tangerine dream was a, a derogatory term you know you couldn't mention it because people said well it's just electronic is just you know cheap and uh, nobody wants it and this is not real music blah 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 so it's just funny for me to see this resurgence now you know where it was all oh, the 80s and tangerine you know it's cool and blah 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 
I've seen, you know, I've seen the full, uh, uh, I've seen the full length of that wave going from the very low to now to the very top again. It's probably going to go again, you know. No, I mean, it's, I mean, film music seems today to be as popular, if not more so, uh, than it was in kind of the 1980s when the big, you know, when when the when the film industry kind of exploded in the in the early 80s, early to mid 80s. We're seeing that kind of resurgence now, but with film scores. I mean. Um, talking to you today is 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 part of why you know I, i'm doing this i'm able to do this i'm able to talk to you today because of the popularity and the resurgence and not just film scores as well but this is also happening in television because television has has kind of it's kind of done a 180 on itself now where it's it's almost eclipsing uh films in regard to production quality value uh the people they get you know you get these big hollywood stars now doing tv shows and you have things like halt and catch fire which is uh which is one of the reasons why i'm talking to you today which is this wonderful story uh so far we've had two seasons we're about to go into season three now and it's all set during that magic period of the 80s show did you think yes this is awesome i can i can kind of i can i can take from what i've done in the past and i can expound on that and i can do new things or did you just think hmm how am i going to do this <laughs> no i i always i i sensed an opportunity and you know the the music supervisor thomas golovich uh, told me about it early on when he was hired music supervisors usually get hired uh, before composers and uh, he told me about this little show that uh, AMC was doing that um, I think his words was should be right up your alley. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I, I put a few tracks together for him and gave him some ammo. And then he went in and talked with the producers. And I think for them, it, it was... Uh, both scary a connection, but at the same time they couldn't let it pass. You know, to have one of <laughs> of the members of Tangerine Dream score their show, which is about the eighties, and uh, and you know, I I met the guys, and I immediately also got the sense again that they wanted to do things a little bit different, and and that we would have a good time creatively working together on this, and and that's pretty much exactly what happened. You know, I I think the in the in the most positive case, uh, a relationship like this helps to focus uh, and to weed out the music. It's the same uh, if you're working with the producer on an album, and the the sole function of the producer really is to just make you realize what stuff is not that good and to throw it away, and then just stay with the with the few gems in the puddle. And 
it was pretty much like that on Halt and Catch Fire, where there was a you know there was much discussion in the in the process, but it never felt um, like we were wasting time. It was towards a goal, and I think the show you know I've, I've had so many people come up and say you know the way music is used in Halt and Catch Fire is so cool. You know it's it's not overscored like so many other shows, and it's it's really just the right amount, but. I have to credit the producers and, and creators for that, you know, because I, my job is to give them as much music uh, uh, as they ask for. And then together we make these decisions and, and, and we decide on a musical language for the show. And like in this case, I, I really think it was uh, the best of several worlds uh, and, and the result shows it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've always thought that the mark of a good score is one that you don't really notice is there a lot of the time. If it's if you're not noticing it, it's doing its job because it's accentuating what's on the screen. And and part of what I love about Halt and Catch Fire is, yes, the show is set in the 80s, but the music doesn't sound dated. And sometimes when you're watching a television show that's set in a, a different time period, there is a tendency for the composer to think, well, I'll, I'll, I'll set this score in the time period of the show and I, I don't get that from Halt and Catch Fire it sounds very fresh it sounds very modern yeah I, I, to me you know uh, it's here referred to as period pieces and you know HBO is, is very guilty of doing a lot of period pieces I always hated the term I hated this okay we're in this uh, time frame and now everything has to sound exactly like this and it's just a silly approach to me it's a silly approach and uh, to, to me, what is what makes more sense is to uh, approach it almost in a remix fashion and and say, I'm going to take another swing at this, but anything goes. Anything should be possible. There should be no um, rules for this other than we're going to draw from some sources that are connected to that time period, and we're going to come up with our own stew. And, you know, if you look at um, actually, uh, you know, I'm doing this, of course, uh, with the background of having done the first round in the 80s. But there's plenty of kids now who are doing it without that first round. And they're just coming back to it and they're picking the raisins out of the pie and they make their own stew. And that can be said for the film It Follows. It can be said for Stranger Things. You know, this new Netflix show is hugely popular here. And they just sort of extract from musical history or, or you know, uh, musical development the bits that they found particularly interesting and they found particularly cool, and then they give it their own spin. And, you know, if I want to take a bigger picture on this, I, and since I studied music, this, ha this is how music history has always worked, you know. Um, Mozart borrowed from Bach, and I'm not comparing anybody to anybody here, but... But, you know, people were always influenced um, or inspired by stuff that had happened previously. And then they said, oh, that's a cool idea. Let me try something along those lines, but different. And in a way, that's what everybody does, you know. And, and the shows, you know, working for a picture or working for a story just gives you an additional focus and says, okay, uh, apart from it being set in the 80s and apart from it being about the computer, the, you know, the growing computer industry, which I witnessed, mm. it's all about characters. And I think the, the characters in Hold and Catch Fire are just as fascinating as the backstory and, uh, you know, the, the subject of the show. 
Um, so you can spend time just with the characters and not even think about the 80s or not even think about the, the time period that we're in. So it's, this, this is, for me, what makes a show interesting. You know, if there's not just one aspect that you, that you like or, or that you can care about. No, I completely agree. And I think, uh, I think one of the things that I particularly really like about the score for Halt and Catch Fire is, aside from what's happening on the screen, the score is very optimistic. At least that's the way it comes across to me. I mean, the show, we, we've just, we've, uh, we're ramping up to, we're about to start season three now. And throughout the show so far, there's been some ups and there's been some downs. But the score has always kind of, it's held this optimism. <laughs> and uh, I really enjoy that, though, I think, because... I mean, during the 1980s, as you said, you, you've, you've already mentioned, I mean, you were there for that. It would be, you know, you could have just, oh, I've already done, I can do this. I've already done this once. But it's, it's, it's a great, it's a great score. As I've mentioned many times, it's, it's a fantastic score. It's one that I'm really enjoying. And you mentioned something that I, I find very, very interesting. And that's the, the volume of music that you create for the show. Do you have, is there kind of a set amount that you need to create per episode? Um, it's different from show to show. And, you know, I've, I've done quite a few um, uh, TV shows by now. And, uh, you know, the, the AMC shows that I'm on right now, which is Halt and Catch Fire and, and Fear the Walking Dead, both benefit from showrunners and producers who favor a sparse music approach. Um, we all... Because, you know, see, there's been a resurgence of, of television that you mentioned. And what happened is basically that the, the movie side kind of dried out and the business models became kind of stale and it split off into small indie movies and big uh, franchise uh, operations. So there was, a, there was an opportunity for television and for writers specifically to, to make their point in television, and they did. So then what happened is television became hugely popular and now everybody's doing television shows and it produces this, this enormous amount um, of, of production that's going on and a lot of these shows you know, are, are basically trying to ride the wave but they're, they're overproduced and they're overscored and they're overdone in pretty much every regard. So I'm, I count myself very lucky that I'm two shows that don't follow that, but um, favor us sparse, have basically their, their creative controls in check and, and favor sort of a sparse music approach, stay clear of cliches. And there are so many cliches now in, in television music, the act out ramps and then sort of the, the, big, uh, the big hits on everything. And uh, I'm allergic to it, and the people I'm working with on these shows are also allergic to it. So we stay clear of or the, the constant underscoring of anything that's going on in the story. So we're trying to counter that, you know, and, and play music when uh, it makes sense to play music and have a music moment. And then not score every little bit, you know, if there's like a five-second act out as uh, well, it really, uh, it can do without that. And, and you know, it's, uh, it's, you have to find people that just are like-minded and, and think along the same lines. But in, this, in both of these shows, I'm, I'm lucky to have that uh, on the other side. And also music supervisors Thomas Golovich on Halt and Catch Fire and, and Linda Cohen on Fear the Walking Dead, who are with me and, and who have the same allergies and and want the same things for the music to be to be implemented cool and 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 reduced and so i think you know 
the fact that that music plays well in those shows is a result of of the people that work creatively on it sharing the same taste or sharing the same aversions to two cliches of 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 film and tv music Mm. no that's fantastic do you um you ever given kind of um do you collaborate on the score pieces are you ever given some are you ever given a script or uh told about something far in advance and 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 they'll say to you look this is the kind of thing we want uh for this scene or is everything completely 100 percent left up to you um you mean uh, in terms of temp tracks or in terms of yeah like uh is there ever do you collaborate with the directors or the writers where there'll there'll be a a pivotal scene or a key moment where they kind of this is what we want the music to do or is it entirely left up to you no that's what the temp track is for the temp track is for them to show me sort of this this is roughly what i what we want music to do in in this sequence and you know in in both of these shows now being in second and third season there's also plenty to draw from from previous seasons so which each season it gets easier because the the show already has sort of a signature sound and vibe and they draw from that we always when we deliver we give them splits also for the cues so quite often they re uh, compose the splits into something new that they that they need for a new scene and, you know, it's uh, it has changed in the sense that it used to be, when I started out, it used to be, you know, you recorded and then you went in and mixed uh, the damn thing. And it's not like that anymore. It's, it's a constant construction process. And the construction process of sound really starts with the picture editor now, how music is applied. And it's a it's a tradition that really starts with Michael Mann, I guess, you know, is is that sound becomes part of the creative language and can be messed with. It's not about sound to be real or to be right, it's about sound to be interesting. And that process really starts with the picture editor putting the whole thing together and how he's using or she's using sound in that. And I'm joining that process with uh, the spotting session when we go through the show and they play the soundtrack and everybody's in the same room and we'll discuss basically okay functionalities of the score the effect of the score and and what we're going after um in certain sections and it's a very uh it's an enjoyable process in part because in television you don't have time to to muck around you know you're on a tight schedule and you have to get this done. And so there's very little time for, you know, the industry term is frame fucking. But, uh, uh, and I know we can curse on your show. <laughs> yes, we can, we can. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's just much less of that on the television side than, I, than I'm seeing on the film side. I, I benefit, you know, from working in film, in television, and with video games. So I have uh, pretty much... Uh, all bases covered and I see all the different uh, modes of, of creative operation and it is quite different um, if you compare film to television how sort of little fuzz there is in, in television and how much fuzz there is in film where pretty much every frame gets second guessed and turned around five times and uh, and and you know and, and the changes quite often don't really produce an advantage they're 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 just adding mileage Hmm. and um so 
I could see situations where it's great to have that extra attention to detail, but I also see quite a few situations where I'm grateful that in television you simply don't have time for it. You just have to get the show delivered uh, in time. And you work under extreme time stress, and sometimes that type of stress produces interesting results. Absolutely. Well, I mean, personally for me, I'm a huge fan of the score. I think it's fantastic, and I think everyone listening to this needs to go and check it out, whether you buy it digitally or on CD. You need to get it. It's available now digitally through Lakeshore Records, and it's coming on CD on September the 16th. Paul, thank you so much for spending time talking to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to chat with you. Uh, what's actually coming up next for you? Um, I'm just about to leave for Toronto where we're where the final mix for <clears throat> the next Resident Evil film uh, is happening. <clears throat> um, it's um, a Paul W.S. Anderson film who I worked with before on Three Musketeers and Death Race. And it's the, the final installment in... in this franchise and uh, it's a it's a it's a pretty it was a pretty cool <laughs> pretty cool ride. It's, I think it has 100 minutes of music in it or something ridiculous. So um, and it's a very sort of sound design stylized approach. So something I always wanted to do sort of do an action movie with this um, very stylized and uh, we you know it's very non-linear and 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 cut in a in a very uh, interesting way so it's a it's a cool project uh, pretty much exactly the opposite of uh, halt and catch fire or fear the walking dead so you know it keeps my life interesting excellent stuff well again thank you paul for joining me and uh who knows hopefully i'll talk to you again one day soon sounds good would love to tell me thanks so much <laughs>